It was the first time uh, a gay character had been portrayed in a non-stereotypical way. He was an ordinary man, and they introduced it into EastEnders, which was then the most popular show on television. And so we were going out to 11 million people uh, an episode, and when my character was introduced, even before I appeared on, state, uh, on screen, uh, the front page of one of the tabloids just had my photograph and then the huge headline, East Benders. And welcome to Up The Arts Podcast, the only podcast out there offering a dedicated space to discuss everything that's fabulous about LGBT arts and culture. This week, I'm in the East End of London, a part of the city that my guest who's beside me knows, well, all too well, I suspect. We'll, we'll find out a little bit more about that in a moment. Baron. Michael Cashman, CBE, is that correct? That's right. Fabulous. And you are a true EastEnder through and through. Well, he's now written an autobiography, or his autobiography is with me now, and it's called One of Them, From Albert Square to Parliament Square, and that has been a journey. It's been an incredible journey. Um, In fact, my title is Baron Cashman of Limehouse, which is here, where I live, and where I was born. I, I literally... Uh, at the end of this street, there's um, the remnants of an old council estate. And I was born there in 1950. I was born three weeks early, and it wasn't because it was a cold December, it was because my dad was jumped and there was a street fight outside Stepney East Station. <laughs> and my mum, pregnant with me, did what any decent wife would do. She waded in, threw a few punches, and then... Uh, a couple of hours later, she went into labour with me and my dad said, he said, it was a fight that brought you into the world and you've been fighting ever since. <laughs> um, but I have wonderful memories here, not the least, because actually it was Paul, my late husband, that brought us both back here 18 years ago. So it's filled with memories. Mm. But interestingly, I can walk down the street sometimes and I catch a smell uh, or a sound, and it takes me right the way back, sometimes to my childhood, uh, other times Paul and I staggering out of the white swan or the ship. Um, so it's beautiful to be home. Yes, fantastic. Well, let me ask you about that title then. How does that come around? Do you get a say that you'd like to become Baron of Limehouse again? When I stepped down from the European Parliament after 14 years... Um, it was so that I could spend more and more time with Paul. And then we were away. I, I, I won't give too much away because mm. it's in the book, but we were away and I got this call that Ed Miliband wanted me to go into the House of Lords. They only had three people that Labour could put in. Um, and so you begin the process and you're not, not allowed to tell anyone. And, of course, we did. <laughs> um, and, and then you go off and you have to sit down in the Royal College of Arms and negotiate your title. And I had, and you, you meet with the Garter King of Arms. And, uh, and I said to Ian McKellar, my best friend, I said, I'm going off to see Garter. And he said, has, hasn't he got another name, darling? I said, well, you call him Garter. <laughs> and, and you sit down and you, he says, have you thought of a title? And, and you negotiate it. And when it came to, uh, I said, I thought Lord Cashman of Limehouse. He said, oh, yes, very good, yes. You see, we've done our research, and that's available. Yes, it's available. And, um, and once you get the title, if Her Majesty doesn't object, he said, then thereafter you will be the Lord Cashman. 
And I said, not Lord Cashman of Limehouse. Oh, no, the Lord Cashman, because there is only one Lord Cashman of Limehouse, so no need to designate. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful, wonderful. And that was it. My title was agreed and the the letters are drawn up by the palace and you're summoned to attend because the sovereign needs your assistance um, in Parliament. Uh, And the wonderful thing... The wonderful thing. Paul Paul knew I was going into the House of Lords. And the last weeks of his life um, were fairly traumatic. And he died four days before I went in. But even on that last day, he was sat negotiating with the medical staff as to how they might get him to the Lords Mm -hmm. so that he could see me go in. Um, And... um, so he wasn't there physically, but my God, he was there in my heart. And he was probably there along with your old mum and dad. What would they make of their son being the Lord of Cashman of Limehouse? <laughs> well, it, it's, it's interesting. I, you see, I, I think they would be staggered. My mum was mesmerised by anything I did in, in the arts. Um, my dad, not... not so much. Um, when, I, when I became um, an elected member of the National Executive of the Labour Party, I think that was his proudest moment. Right, okay. so, so was he political then as he well? Was, yeah. He was, but he was politi- He was a, a Labour supporter, but he was a good old trade unionist. Mm-hmm. He'd been in the docks, then became a park keeper uh, and a head keeper, uh, and was always the shop steward, always looked after people. He loved nothing better than fighting injustice. And so going into politics for him, he associated with that more. And, and you saying about me going into the Lords um, and my mum and dad uh, and Paul, uh, that's the, the tinge of sadness that accompanies wonderful moments. But also, when Paul and I had our civil partnership, I remember thinking, if only my mum and dad were here, mm-hmm. um, because he had a habit and again, I don't want to give too much away. He had a habit at weddings of suddenly disappearing and returning dressed up as an old lady <laughs> or a little boy. And I just had this wonderful image of my dad in my civil partnership with half the cabinet there, <laughs> star, stars of EastEnders and, uh, and Paul O'Grady and everybody else, and there's suddenly this little old woman appearing with no teeth in, and that would have been my dad. <laughs> We are here to discuss your book. It's always a challenge, isn't it, to talk about something but not to give too much away. So that, that's always in the back of, of my mind as, as well as yours. So thanks for reminding me every so often that, yeah, I don't want to say too much. But one thing I really get a sense of was that support your mum gave you in the early days when your acting took off as a, as a teenager heading into the West End nightly. I mean, mm. that was a big commitment for someone from the East End, not much money around. You know, she, really, she really believed in you. Um, she, she, she had unflinching belief, uh, and, and actually, she did with with her four sons. She would always say, uh, "Come on, come on, you'll be all right." A wonderful expression of hers was, uh, "Something will turn up, son. If only the toes of your shoes." And it's a lovely idea that you stand waiting long enough, so long that the the, the ends of your shoes turn up. <laughs> she had amazing faith. Mm-hmm. They, they, it was a hard life. It, as I said, my dad was a docker. She was an office cleaner. Um, and interestingly, why I ended up kind of in show business was because I failed my 11 plus mm. and went off to this 
secondary modern school where even as, as young as 11, I mean, I knew around about the age of seven that I was attracted to other boys. So I knew I was different. Um, and, and I had to deal with some early awful abuse uh, in, in my life at that time, thankfully not from within the family. Mm -hmm. So I knew I was different and I knew I didn't fit in in this secondary modern school. And it was by accident, by chance, me impersonating Eartha Kitt and Louis Armstrong that the drama master put me in the end of term school show and lo and behold, there was a talent scout wow. who yeah. was looking for kids to go into Oliver and Blitz, which were in the West End. And through a very short process, within months, I was ending up in the East End, traveling from the East End of London on a bus into the West End to walk on stage in this world where I felt I absolutely belonged. And when my dad said, oh, I don't want him going to show business, it's full of queers, me inside my head went, yippee, I want to be there. Because I knew I was different and in that world, I belonged, but it wasn't long before within that world. Um, somebody started grooming me right. and convinced my parents that uh, I should be handed over to them as, uh, as my manager. And I think, again, my parent, my mother's utter belief that I would always be okay, perhaps blinded them uh, to what was going on. But... Uh, but yeah, it was it, it, it was incredible going from that East End mm. to that amazing West End and the neon lights and the, I always said here the smell that permeated the air was the brewery nearby, and um, uh, uh, and horse manure oh. because of all of the horses, the horse and carts yeah. that used to carry everything. And then soon as you got into the West End, all you could smell was perfume. Yeah. So it was, it was as far as your senses were concerned, it stunned you at every level. And what stunned me as well was that that thing you talked about, you know, the, the chap who ended up grooming uh, you for a, for a time. There seemed to be a lot of kind of that sort of thing happening, you know, that predatory opportunity. I don't know what it mm. is, you know, but it wasn't the only time and there was others around. And, and I just wonder, were you unlucky or was that the way of it back then? I think I was unlucky. Um, because, as you say, it, it happened to me really right the way through my early teens. And, and there's, a, there's an inc incident in the book of a, you know, a famous director and the way they manage so that I end up in his bedroom, completely unaware of what me, completely unaware of what was going on. I was vulnerable. I think I wanted to belong. I, mm. When I look back at young Michael and that smile, he was just saying, take, take me, take me, I want to belong. And, the, and the, I think once you bury a secret, um, you get used to burying secrets. Because I couldn't, when that happened to me as a young child, I couldn't tell anyone because you don't know the words to use. And if you find the words, you don't know if anybody will believe you. And if they believe you, you know you will cause trouble. And children were told not to cause trouble. We used to be told ch children should be seen and not heard. And that's why I think now it wouldn't, it's, it wouldn't be prevalent. It's still happening, as we know. 
Um, there are still individuals and gangs who will groom. But that's where relationship education and sex education in schools at an early age is vital. So you empower young people to know what is appropriate behaviour towards them and what isn't. Mm. And if it isn't, what they can do to write it. I didn't deal with mine, really, mm. until I started writing my book. Right. And that was a promise I made to Paul. And, and have you found that it has given you a bit of closure or help? <clears throat> of course. You learn that unless you own everything that's happened to you in life, even those darker elements, then they will own and control you mm. and they will be the demons that leap out when you're trying to form a relationship uh, or you've had that one drink too many. And one never gets closure because I don't want to bury something that is so important and that allows me to look at what's happening to others and say, no, you can't do that. It allows me to fight an injustice, mm. I think. I mean, no one's asked, uh, asked me that before, but I, I, I think it, it does motivate me uh, that, that I think, no, you cannot do that. Mm -hmm. You cannot create or per perpetrate an injustice against another individual, mm. regardless. Mm -hmm. um, and so it goes into the mosaic of one's life. And people have said to me, you're, you're brave to put these things in your book, and there are many others. And it, I think what they mean is I'm stupid to put them in. But, but, but no, uh, lives are like a mosaic. And if, you, if when you're reporting on your life, whether it's in a book or whatever, if you only choose certain colours, the picture isn't complete. And people know mm. when they read or when they listen, they think, no, there's something missing here. Tell the truth. My mum used to say, tell the truth and shock the devil. Well, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in the devil or God. Yeah. Um, so tell the truth and just, if it shocks, tough. Mm. But also, you're saying it's still going on today. If someone's reading it, it might give them courage to do something about it. So in, in some respect, you may be helping others as well, which is, is encouraging. I would hope so. But the, the other thing is... is Particularly as men, mm. we're told men have certain, demo certain emotions and they don't have others. I think a lot of men have suffered uh, sexual abuse over the years. Uh, and if in some way it can help others to come out and say that happened to me and it mm. shouldn't have happened to me, then that is a wonderful, a wonderful bonus be because I think... The more we are open about our lives, the more we can, the more we can help others as well as help ourselves. Mm. Yes. Let's look at the, the positives as well, because what mm. it didn't do was screw you up to a point where it ruined your life. And it could very easily have done so. You know, I'm, I suppose it's a strength inside yourself. You have to look in the mirror and think to yourself, I'm not going to let this ruin the rest of my life. Because being in the theatre and being an actor, you must have also come across some fabulous people. You mentioned your best friends, Ian McKellen, yeah. and, and the fun of being in the West End in those days must have been fantastic. Well, I... I and all through your career. Absolutely. In, in, 
When I was in Oliver, Phil Collins was one of Fagin's gang who went oh, to right. do went on to do Genesis. Do you know I mean Genesis? Yes, yeah, yes. He was the same age as you, roughly, and in the and he was in Oliver. Oh wow! And, and I, he and I met years later at a, 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 a charity event, and I looked at him and I said, "You you won't remember me, Phil." He said, "Isn't it funny? Every time I see you on EastEnders, I think he won't remember ah. me." Um, <laughs> but but you're right to say that uh, you know. I had this amazing career working with, uh, at the time, huge stars like Billy Fury, Elizabeth Taylor, David Hemmings, um, and uh, and having a career that, that went from being a child actor, mm. where I did some wonderful parts, uh, and then becoming a young adult actor and going on tour and discovering gay Britain, yes. which was confined to tiny little smoky back rooms in pubs, um, and coming back to London and, and with a mate who, who, who was an actor, he said, he said, I'll, I'll, he said, I'll show you around London. He says, some fantastic places. He says, we can get, we can get lost in all sorts of naughty ways. <laughs> and off we went. Ian, took, Ian um, Taylor took me off around the West End uh, and I was 15 and a half and I remember I went down the stairs in Darblay Street, just off Berwick Street, yeah. into this darkened space and then pushed another buzzer, bzzz, and the door opened and we went in. <gasps> and there were boys roughly my own age, 16, 17, dancing cheek to cheek. Yeah. It was 1966. And remember, homosexuality was illegal. Mm -hmm. And I thought I'd died and gone to atheist heaven. It was <laughs> incredible. So, so you, we, we find survival mechanisms, but, but also um, my life was wonderful. I, I, I fell in love with someone when I was 16. He was eight years older than me. And I chased him down and got him to finally surrender. And he said, yes, OK, come on. And we were together for nine years. Oh, wow. um, OK. Uh, and so having a stable relationship, uh, uh, as, as also as a young actor, but as a, a gay man, was, uh, I think, crucial in, in my development because people forget growing up being told you're a criminal, be, growing up with other gay men saying you can't, uh, you can't approach people on the streets, you, you'll be arrested, um, you, 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 you'll end up in prison, it has a deep psychological effect mm. if, if you're not careful. And did your family know back then? Did you, were you comfortable enough to say to your brothers or your mum, perhaps not your dad, that, you know, this was my boyfriend? No. No. I didn't, I didn't actually say the words to them that I'm, I'm gay. Mm. I, I think in my mid-twenties. But what I did, what I knew I had to do was not set expectations that I was not prepared to meet. So when they used to say to me, where are you going? I'd say, out. Mm -hmm. And they'd say, you're going out with a girl? And I'd say, no. And when my brother got married, mm -hmm. my eldest brother, they said, bring a girl. And I said, no, I'll bring a mate. And thereafter, I always took a mate. But Lee, being eight years older than me, the, the man I had the nine-year relationship with, man, we were young men together, mm -hmm. young boys really growing into life. Um, and he was wonderful, crazy, mixed up. Um, and, and Lee always kept a distance because 
even when the age of consent was introduced to 21, I was still below the age of 21. Oh, right, even then. So we were still, uh, our relationship was illegal. So, so, so there was always that distance uh, with my family. But, but I just moved out. I moved out at 16 mm -hmm. and uh, the testosterone in our council flat was bouncing off the walls sure, with, with four, four boys. boys and my dad. Yeah, your poor mum. No, I think my mum fed on it. She, oh. <laughs> that's the way she dealt with all the loan sharks that, that she used to she used to borrow from, from Peter to rob Peter to pay Paul. Uh -huh. um, and, and so when I moved out, it was for them a, a sense of relief. Mm -hmm. they, they had more space. And that's the way a lot of gay men managed their mm -hmm. lives. And and sadly, why some gay men then grew away from their biological families. Mm. It's that lovely expression of logical families that Armistead Maupin yes. talks about, mm. and biological families. Um, but I was lucky that I, I, I kept and have always kept my, my, my loving relationship with my, my family and my four brothers. We still... But we're very close. Well, unfortunately, I think that is where it goes wrong for a lot of gay men when they make the decision it's one or the other yeah. and maybe come to London. You know, Irish half of, you know, every gay man I know in my town has moved away, and you know that you do almost feel like you're forced to choose one or the other. So it's yeah. it's a, a credit if you can do both. Mm. You know, particularly in those days, and and people coming from really you know working class communities as well. And um, maybe I, I I was lucky in that. Many gay men, not only young gay men, mm. and, and, and I know this is the same for bisexuals and trans and you know, lesbians, mm. but, but let me just talk about young gay men at that time, and even now. Go and seek a kind of anonymity mm. in bigger cities. Absolutely. I could do that by getting on a bus. Mm. I could do that by getting on the tube. So, so I had the security of my family home. Um, and then when I had my relationship with Lee and I moved out. We lived the other side of London. Mm -hmm. So I didn't have also that geographical separation that, that I think uh, enforces a kind of social separation. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, and that is very important. You could always come back if, if you wanted to. Uh, and, yeah. and indeed, when, um, uh, you know, when, when I needed space, where, because all relationships need work relationships are like old houses you've got to make sure the damp isn't coming through and that the roof is okay and and the foundations are so those times when i needed to get away i'd say coming home for a couple of days and my 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 younger youngest brother used to say oh i see posh boys coming home <laughs> and my mum would say what what you on about yogurts in the fridge uh, and yogurts in those days that was posh <laughs> So it was the food, not how you had changed. You didn't become very thespian-like and you lose your Cockney accent then. <laughs> there was a lovely time when um, I was at home and I bought an avocado pear and, um, and I said, Mum... So I cut the pear in half and I said, Mum, have you got any vinegar? She went, yeah, there's vinegar in the, uh, in the cupboard. I said, have you got any oil? She went, oil? What do you want oil for? I said, I'm going to mix it together and put it on this avocado, <laughs> this pear. She went, oh... My goodness, you show business people are strange. <laughs> and my nan, my nan Cashman, she went, hey, what's all this I hear about you getting above yourself, putting oil all over pears? <laughs> 
top of the estate. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the, the book is called uh, From Albert Square to Parliament Square, but that's just a very short part of your life. But a complete game changer, I suppose, yes. becoming part of, of such a big programme back then. And it really was huge. Interestingly, the, the title, One of Them, Yes. I give an instance of why it, it resounded with me, really resonated, but that was what they used to call you in the East End if you were, if they thought you were, as in those days we said, if they thought you were queer, they, they'd say, I think he's one of them. Um, and so that, you know, one of them, Albert Square to uh, Parliament Square, it's true to say, I think, that if I hadn't gone into EastEnders at that time, very difficult period, when AIDS and HIV was depicted as, I quote, the gay plague, um, when it was dark, dark for lesbians, gay men, bisexuals and trans people. Um, going into that show, playing that part, I think if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have made the journey to Parliament Square. Mm. Because in the show, when I was in the show, I mean, the, the media attacks were awful. We were looking at how the media can um, have an appalling impact on people's lives. It hasn't changed in its attitude uh, in relation to when it decides to bully. Uh, and Paul and I suffered some terrible um, reportage. He was outed to his family and friends in the centre pages of uh, a Sunday newspaper. They put the location of our address and that afternoon wow. a brick came through the window and it wasn't the last brick that came through the window. So Sorry, we... just some people listening may not remember that storyline. It's mm. quite important they understand that. So you had a particular storyline in EastEnders. As, yes, yeah. in EastEnders playing, it was the first time uh, a gay character had been portrayed uh, in a non-stereotypical way. He was an ordinary man and they introduced it into EastEnders, which was then the most popular show on television. And so we were going out to 11 million people uh, an episode. And when my character was introduced, even before I appeared on, state, uh, on screen, uh, the front page of one of the tabloids just had my photograph and then the huge headline, East Benders. And there were questions in Parliament as to why they were putting a gay character in a family show with AIDS and HIV swirling around the country. And remember, people were told that you could catch AIDS by sitting next to a gay man mm -hmm. or using a glass or a cup that hadn't been properly washed. Um, so taking that character into the show uh, and developing it was, uh, was amazing. And then later on, because he had a young boyfriend, they gave us a kiss. And the kiss was actually a peck on the forehead. But the tabloids went berserk. Again, there were questions in Parliament. There were calls from politicians uh, for the BBC to take my character out. And if they didn't remove my character, then the show should be axed. But the BBC... Extreme. Yeah, but the BBC stood firm. Mm -hmm. And we went on about 18 months later to do another kiss, this time lip on lips mm -hmm. and of course there was a bit of outrage but nothing like the previous one because we had broken the mold we had continued to depict these men and their relationship as not extraordinary mm. but equal to other relationships um, so 
So it was pretty in incredible. And why do I say that being in that show uh, led me to where I am now? Well, because the government brought in for the first time in 100 years uh, an anti-gay, lesbian and gay bisexual law mm. called Section 28. And, and I knew, I knew deep in my heart that I had to be on that march against it. And once I was on that march that I had to campaign against mm -hmm. Section 28. There's a lovely story about how I um, wanted to get some time off to go on this march and I couldn't. And June Brown, Dot. who played Dot, she went, oh, leave it to me, Mike, dear, don't worry, I'll sort it. <laughs> and she did. And, and so going on that march, leading in that, that campaign, along with Ian McKellen and others, against Section 28... And losing the battle to stop it, mm. but then decided, deciding we had to set up an organisation to stop another one of these laws happening again, and that was Stonewall. Mm. That led me directly into politics because I found, all, I found my voice and I found my passion was going into the fight for equality. Um, and, and I think if I hadn't stood up then, two things would have happened. One, I would never have been able to look myself in the mirror again. And secondly, I would have gone into a kind of artistic closet, losing respect for myself and certainly losing the respect of others. Mm, your friends and, and oh. people who, who and, knew as well. Yeah. Yeah. And my dad, years later, years, years later, when I did um, uh, a programme, a documentary against discrimination, uh, about discrimination against uh, LGB people, and my dad and mum, they always phoned after anything I did and would say, oh, congratulations, son, proud of you, proud of you. And then the next day he rang me and recounted a story where he'd been into his local pub um, and the governor had given him a pint, a free pint, because of my documentary the night oh, before. Yeah, right. And my dad said, I, so I just want to tell you, son, uh, that I'm proud of you. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah you, you told me last night because he and I didn't always have an easy relationship mm. And there was this long, long pause. And into the pause, he said, and I want you to know that I love you. I love you. And I choked back my emotions and I said, yeah, I love you too. And I think that was the day I became my father's son. It was the day he recognised that if he'd been gay and he'd had exactly the same opportunities and choices, he would have done exactly the same. And that's what I mean about knowing when you've got to make a decision and following it through and the consequences mm. if you don't. Mm. But all the way through the book, you get a sense from your life that you, you're a doer. You know, you say your dad didn't do that, but he wasn't gay anyway, but you know, you're a doer. Once you see something, you, you then change it or try to or campaign or do something. Probably comes I, back to your parents, does it? it, it well, it certainly comes back to, I think, something... I, I don't know where it, it, it's come from. My nan used to say, oh, Nan Cashman, we'd pass what we used to call tramps in, the, in, in, in my mm. childhood, and she would say, always remember that somebody's son. Mm. And it was so powerful that an old man sat on the street uh, in threadbare clothes and no shoes mm -hmm. that she saw as somebody's son. And, and I, I think the, 
the ability to stand in the shoes of somebody else and say, what, is, what if that were me, uh, is empowering. Mm -hmm. And um, maybe that's something that I've learned being brought up with a tough childhood. Uh, and as an actor, you have to use your imagination. But, but I think, um, I do know that life is short. It's gone in the blink of an eye, especially if someone that you love more than you love yourself has gone. You see how short life is and how you can't waste a moment. And if you see an injustice and you don't speak out, you condone it. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's as simple as that, which is why I, I, I can't stand by as I watch some gay men and others throw away the rights of trans people, trans women, trans men. I can't, I can't understand that. When you've suffered yourself through a perceived difference, how dare we cut ourselves away from others? Because all minorities, when we, when, when we stand parallel with one another, we become an invincible force. Mm. When we are separated and we separate ourselves from others, we are weak and we are vulnerable. And Pastor Naimala wrote a brilliant poem about that and the 1930s when they came from the gypsies. I was not a gypsy, so I did not speak out. When they came for the Jews, I was not a Jew, so I did not speak out. When they came for me, there was no one left to speak out. Defend the other as if you were defending yourself. Mm -hmm. Very powerful, isn't it? Very, I do go on, though, don't I? I do go on. <laughs> what you did with Stonewall particularly has, has you know, gone on to help and support probably millions of, of gay people in the early days, but I suppose the whole community today. Are you still involved in Stonewall? What's, I, I can't... Are you I, I, I'm not officially involved. Um, I chaired Stonewall for uh, its first, I think, five years. Mm -hmm. um, then stepped back and you have to be able to let go but I'm still engaged with Stonewall mm. I support their work I, I do um, various things for them and, I, and, I, and I, I think they're absolutely on the right track somebody said to me the other day oh Stonewall's having a bit of a hard time over uh, over defending trans women and trans men mm. I said you know what if a campaigning organization isn't having a bit of a bad time, then it's not doing the right thing because you campaign mm. to try to achieve what others don't want you to have. When Stonewall was set up, the opposition that we had from within the lesbian, gay and bisexual community, mm -hmm. the activists, with them saying, who are you? Who said you could do this? Who do you represent? And my answer was, we represent ourselves. Mm. We represent a case for equality. Um, so Stonewall's life has always been difficult because it sets itself the task of achieving equality. It's interesting, Ruth Hunt, the previous chief mm -hmm. executive, has recently joined me in the House of Lords as yes. Baroness Hunt of Bethnal Green. So with her up there at Bethnal Green yes. and me down here at Limehouse, we've got the patch covered. <laughs> but, but. Stonewall's doing brilliant work, so is Kaleidoscope, the Human Dignity Trust, Peter Tatchell Foundation, mm. Amnesty. The more organisations we have 
the more we can defend what we have, the more we can build on it because there's still stuff to do around schools and education and inclusive relationship mm. education, but equally in other parts of the world. We can't disassociate ourselves from what other people are living through and how mm. their human rights are stripped away because they are seen to be different. So uh, there's still uh, a great deal of work to be done. Yeah, well, I, I was going to say they're, they're more relevant now than, than perhaps ever, you know, in, in recent times than ever before, particularly with you know, here and what's happening in Northern Ireland, and, you know, and that's on our own doorstep. Yep, well, it, that's a brilliant example because we were working in the House of Lords and, they were, as you know, they were working the, in the House of Commons calling for equal marriage in Northern Ireland. If we're a united kingdom, we need rights yeah. that unite us and which are effective in all parts of the United Kingdom. And it was opposed and opposed. The government in the UK said no. We, in, in Westminster said, we don't want to do anything about it. It's, it's devolved, it's for Stormont. But eventually, the government in Westminster had to act. Mm -hmm. And equally, let's remind ourselves, um, that women didn't have the right to choose in Northern Ireland, but now they do. And it's, isn't it better when a country, when a country oh, is yeah. equal? Yes. I think it, it, it's so much better. I'm doing some work on widening the pardons for historic uh, homosexual crimes and the disregard of convictions. It's, there's a body of work to be done. I've got the government to take on my amendment uh, and I'm also working so that the pardons are extended into those uh, who served in the armed services and the Royal Marines. Mm. So, uh, so that's some work being done here, keeping a careful eye post-Brexit so that our rights are not diminished, that if the economy turns down, that, um, uh, that our rights don't get diluted with that. So, so there's more work to do here, but work internationally. Mm. Because after all, you then achieve the universality of human rights. Mm. Your rights should travel with you. Yes. And nowadays, being in the Lords, do you feel like you can, you're making that difference? <coughs> you feel you're in the right place? The great thing about committing to public life is, um, is that you can affect change. Uh, whether as a, an elected politician or an unelected politician in the House of Lords. Sadly, I resigned from the Labour Party after 45 years of membership because of the increasing uh, reluctance or the reluctance to do anything about the anti-Semitism. And then over Europe, that we were facing both ways on the most important issue facing the country since the Second World War. So I sit as an independent in the House of Lords but even as a member of a party in the House of Lords, you have your independence, you have your voice. Mm. And once you're there, you can pursue uh, the things that you believe should be pursued. And the House of Lords is very interesting because it's a bit like the European Parliament. You have to work with others, you have to build relationships across party divides mm -hmm. because no one party has a majority. Mm. Um, and so I'm enjoying the work that I'm doing there. I do a lot, as people would expect, around LGBT issues and uh, uh, HIV and AIDS, but, but the wider human rights issues, uh, as well as uh, our relationship with the EU, uh, which sadly will be post-Brexit, 
and uh, a range of other things. So, so it's a great place to work. Mm. Of course, it needs reform. Uh, but at the moment, it's working well in trying to hold the government to account, trying to win the arguments as for why a government should think again on certain pieces of legislation. Mm. It's, it's, a wonderful, it's a wonderful chamber of expertise. I just was reading the, or watching the news yesterday. London has um, committed to becoming one of the first HIV-free cities in a decade. And you know we're we're seeing great things with HIV and, and AIDS um, in terms of the medications and prep and all that kind of thing, but some people say not enough's being done. Well, I welcome the commitment in England that we end HIV transmission by 2030. Mm. Uh, as I keep saying to someone, that's not the time; that's the year. But commitments need to be accompanied by proper funding. Um, uh, a lot of the STI clinics uh, have, are having to close, some of them are closing down, mm. uh, others are closing their hours of access because they are funded by local authorities. The government gives the money to local authorities, but it's not what we call ring-fenced. So we've got to make certain that STI clinics remain open, that mm. their hours uh, are, are such that people can get there during the day, after work. Um, and that access to PrEP becomes widely available, not selectively available. And, and I suppose I could sum it up, which is uh, commitments are great, but without cash, nothing mm. changes. Yes. I'm hopeful that the government will follow through, uh, particularly with PrEP. But then the, there is the other issue of um, people who are HIV positive, uh, living with HIV, who then need social care, whether whether social care where they go into a home or social care at home. Mm -hmm. We've got to make certain that these people don't have to deal with any stigma or discrimination mm. uh, when they have to come out again to strangers. Mm -hmm. um, so, so there's some delicate stuff to be done, but the political commitment I welcome, uh, but it needs, it will need money. Yes, we did a story a few years ago now just about that very subject that, you know, for the first time we're having in the last few years, the first time we're now seeing uh, older people, pensioners with HIV and AIDS. That, you know, this is the first generation of yes. that and how society and social care and everyone deals with that, including those people yes. as well. Uh, and so it's a big challenge. It is wonderful, people surviving, mm. some people surviving who thought, they never would. And so therefore we've got to make people's lives comfortable and easy, but at the same time remember those lives that were lost, those dark 80s, uh, um, make that commitment to ensure that those times never come back again. Because it was, I believe, AIDS and HIV and an approach to information and education that gave the Thatcher government a political opportunity to bring in an anti-gay law mm. to bash us at a time when our community should have been given support and hope. We remember our past so that it's never repeated. Mm. And people say, oh, why are you going back to the 1980s and journalists wrote this and they wrote that? Of course you forgive. But if you forget, 
it will be repeated. And this year, the 75th year of the liberation of Auschwitz, every, every year and every day we should remember. And each of us should remember our own minorities' history. Um, history that could be celebrated and a history that should be remembered so that it's never repeated. Mm. I can't go through Reading Station without seeing Oscar Wilde, in my mind, stood on the platform in a prison uniform, his legs manacled, his hands enchained, because he was a gay man uh, and he was having a relationship with somebody else. We've achieved what we've achieved in this country, not because of my generation, but because of thousands of generations. Women and men who stood up thousands of years ago and said, no, you cannot do that. Because of them, we must defend and promote what we have. Yes. Well, I do go on. I yeah. said it earlier. Well, I think it's because of you as well, but I could talk to you all day, obviously. <laughs> I normally see you at Pride or, you, you know, we were at the House of um, Lords a wee while ago as well. But I thought I'd just finish off talking about Paul. You started saying you promised him that you'd write this book. What do you think he'd make of it? Well, a lot of it, he would have said, you can't say that. <laughs> You've got to take that out. There are parts of it I wish... I hadn't had to write. Um, his battle with cancer was incredible. Mm. Uh, this man who, if he had a headache, you go, oh, oh I'm, I'm having a stroke. If he had a pain in his arm, oh, I'm having a heart attack. Watching this amazing man become a hero and then a warrior, battling with this cancer, turning every bit of bad news into something that we should celebrate. Um, and being with him during those last days, they're indelibly printed on my memory because I miss him every single minute of every single day. It's five years and four months. Um, and I said to my dear friend, Sheila Hancock, uh, because John Thor died 17 years ago, and I said, Sheila, does it get any better? And she said, it does. She said, I have to remind myself that I do things that I couldn't do if John was around, and that's the same with me and Paul. Mm. Um, and she said, no, I also remind myself that I do things that if John was around, it would drive him bloody crazy. <laughs> and I said, it's funny you say that. And the other night I wanted to finish this book that I was reading, and as I reached out to turn the bed bedside light on, I heard Paul's voice in my head saying, and you can turn that off for a start. He was so much fun. He, he would turn a joy into something that was stupendous. And I, and I know he would love the House of Lords more than me. They would all know his name. He would know their names. Um, but I made him certain promises um, about myself. They're there in the book. But in the end, the book is about an unimaginable life with this amazing love story at its centre that should never have happened. Mm. Never have happened. Well, it's a true tribute to him. It's 
So thank you for telling us a little bit about it. Thank you. And maybe it's only the first autobiography. A lot of people now are writing, you know, round two. Well, <laughs> I, I've had such a brilliant time <laughs> writing this. I don't think I could repeat it. I've had wonderful feedback, um, beautiful reviews. Mm. And I think if, if, if someone can take away from it something, I hope it's this, that no matter what happens to you in life, you can become yourself. Mm. We'll leave it there. Thank you. <laughs> Well, Michael Cashman, you are an absolute gentleman. Thank you for taking the time to have a chat with us today to tell us all about your life, fascinating life it's been, and of course, your autobiography. One of them from Albert Square to Parliament Square. Now, you were telling me as well before we recorded that it is doing exceptionally well on the LGBT Amazon book list so you can get a copy there you can get a signed copy if you make your way to Gaze the Word which is a gay focused or LGBT focused bookshop in Holborn and of course it's available via all good bookshops so make sure and get your copy that's it for this show we will be back again next week with another fascinating guest but until then keep across what we're up to on social media up the art show on twitter please drop me an email please tell me what you think we should be covering here on this podcast because it's all about what you want to hear in the world of queer arts and culture you can do that by emailing me up the art show at outlook.com or indeed download and subscribe to the podcast tell everyone you know to do the same and the podcast is up the arts podcast in your favorite app for getting podcasts we're on apple we're on spotify we're on itunes until next time have a good time and stay safe